You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Welcome to Adult Sunday School, Kootenai Community Church. Good morning. <laughs> well, let's open in prayer. Father, we delight in your word. We know that within it is the very essence of you. You have given us everything we need to be godly in Christ Jesus in your word. It is sufficient and perfect. Lord, we look into it this morning and ask with anticipation that you would teach us that you would remove those things that need removing, that you would strengthen those things that need strengthening, and that we would go out into the world and proclaim the gospel for the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we trust you for these things, and we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last time I was with you was um, last year. It's been a year. You heard the joke before. And um, we were in chapter 6. We finished chapter 6 of Second Corinthians. So... That means, if all things, all things being equal, that we're going to now do chapter 12. Yeah, okay. No, no, we're not going we, to. We're just common core scripture. It's just common core exegesis. No, we're going we're to go into chapter 7. First, 2 Corinthians, I keep going into 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And what I'd like to do this morning is read the whole chapter. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> I'm going to finish up chapter 6 from verse 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore... Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow with my letter, by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. 
leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of, the, of one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So even this great, difficult body of believers that was, by all standards in the scriptures, the most difficult church to deal with that he had, he has great delight and love for them. And we're going to see that throughout chapter 7 when he comes back from his digression in chapter 2, a five-chapter five digression is all I can call it. Paul now turns to a joyful recitation of the blessings that the church at Corinth had brought him. He challenges them to live the life that they have been given the power to live by the indwelling Holy Spirit. He commends them for their proper response to correction, and he delightfully details some of the wonderful things that the Corinthians did, including their marvelous reception of Titus, their refreshing reception of Titus. They refreshed his spirit, and because of that, Paul was blessed even more. And he's going to detail that as we go through this chapter and, and, and beyond. So verse 1, therefore, reflecting back to the promises that were made that God will be there, he will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, with these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. <laughs> Promises provide motivation. Kids, if you get your rooms clean, we're going to go to the zoo. But dad, we live in a zoo. Don't say that. If you, you know, and so we make promises. Actually, if you just suggest that to your children, it really was a promise, and you should know that. But promises provide motivation. Paul uses the preceding, the just preceding list of promises to encourage the Corinthians in both holy living and in proper thinking. Biblical truth has the ability, when applied through the auspices of the Holy Spirit, to change both one's thinking and what's most important, one's living. Because if you change the way you think and you don't change what you're doing, did you really change your thinking? If you're still doing the same old stuff and it ain't working, but you've changed your mind, you haven't really changed your mind. Because when it becomes shoe leather, that's when you know your mind is actually changed. Once a believer becomes convinced of an error in their thinking, the next thing is to become convinced that wrong thinking has led to wrong living and to change both. So Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul speaks of the Corinthians as his beloved. It's kind of a, it's a remarkable term of endearment that should encourage them and bless them. His encouragement here is to cleanse themselves both from the defilements of the flesh and the spirit. The word defilement means just that. It's, it's, um, it's pollution. Um, it's, you don't 
you, it's, it's the stuff that needs to be removed from a life, removed from food, removed from whatever you're doing so that it is clean. The word for defilement appears only here in the New Testament. It is used in the Septuagint three times, and each time it refers to religious defilement. Paul calls believers to both holy living and ho- holy thinking and holy living. This is a direct allusion to the uh, the Corinthians' embarrassment and pagan worship, especially prior to their salvation. Come out of that. He's still reminding them about that. Some were apparently still struggling with it after salvation, and Paul is calling them away from it. Come out of that polluted way of living. <laughs> he then encourages them to finish, which is a translation of the word perfecting, uh, to finish or perfect their holiness. Further, there needs to be a consistent and constant reverential fear of God. It is a wise recognition that God owns them and has done everything necessary to purchase them from the wicked and evil world they live in and then empowered them with the Holy Spirit to get away from that defilement. It is also a recognition that God has a vested interest in making them like his son and he will discipline toward that end. So for consider him, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look at what Christ went through. That's a reminder to us. That's a, the shepherd was killed. The sheep should not expect to escape all problems. Look at what Christ endured is what Paul is saying or whoever wrote Hebrews is saying here. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin, he was telling the Hebrews. And that could be said for the most part of every believer in America. We've not resisted to the shedding of blood. We've been called names. Wah. You know, what, what notch in my gun butt is that going to produce? You're not even going to be able to see it. It was a scratch. Nothing. Okay, I'm, I've got to get away from Hebrews here. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, as children. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved for him, by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there to whom, the, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. We shall, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. By the way, every time. God doesn't, you, your parents accidentally disciplined you sometimes in a manner that was incorrect, over the top, or for something you didn't do. I remember getting a spanking. And turning to my mother and saying, but I didn't do it. And she, she was flustered for just a moment. She said, well, that's for the one you got away with. <laughs> now, I, I was telling Jim this morning, I use that in, often when I'm teaching. It really only happened once to me. But man, at nine, it was enough. That means I'm in trouble for stuff I didn't do. God doesn't do that. He does not do that. Plus, let's, let's step back and just remind ourselves This is not about salvation. This is about holy living. This is about God directing us in our everyday lives. He's not, it's, God doesn't punish. He disciplines. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives us. Um, 
But if you are without discipline, which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be much Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time to seem best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. Not because he's got nothing better to do, but so that we will share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Yeah, I can vouch for that. But sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, it afterwards yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that is the goal God has for each and every child of his when he disciplines them, is that they will be trained by it and that it will yield fruit, especially the fruit of righteousness, the peaceable fruit of righteousness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Many commentators have worked this passage with chapter 6, 14, 18 in reverse order. The promises in the last three verses of chapter 6 are meant to encourage the behavior changes that chapter 7 begins detailing. The separation that Paul is referring to in verse 14 of chapter 6, where he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? The separation that he's referring to there is strengthened here in this verse. It is a reminder to us that in many cases we must separate ourselves from the things that are going on around us. This is nothing new, and Barclay in his commentary details incidents from the early years of the church and from his time in history back in the two centuries ago. He said this, often, in regard to this, it meant that a man had to give up his trade. Suppose he was a stonemason. What was to happen if his firm received a contract to build a heathen shrine? Can can you connect this with what's going on today? This was written 200 years ago. Is there nothing new under the sun? Nothing. It's not like we have our own special difficulties. This has been going on since Christ came to this earth. Uh, where, where I got off the track again. Suppose he was a tailor. What was supposed to happen if he, what was to happen if he was instructed to cut and sew garments for priests of the heathen gods? Suppose he was a soldier. At the gate of every camp burned the light upon the altar sacred to the godhead of Caesar. What was to happen if he had to fling his pinch of incense on that altar in token of his worship? Time and time again in the early church, the choice came to a man between the security of his job and his loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ. It is told that a man came to Tertullian. He told him his problem, and then he said, but, but, but after all, I must live. Must you, said Tertullian? Must you? That's a terrifying two words, isn't it? We're not there. It's cakes and flowers right now. But the day's coming. Maybe in our lifetimes. I don't know. I don't want my children to have to go through it. It would be nice if we could settle it and be done with it. In the early church, a man's Christianity often meant that he had to get out from his job. One of the most famous modern examples of this same thing was F.W. Charrington. He was the heir to a fortune made by brewing. He was passing a tavern one night. There was a woman waiting at the door. A man, obviously her husband, came out and she was trying to keep him from going back in. He was spending the family's money for food is what was going on. With one blow of his fist, the man felled her, his wife. Charrington started forward and then he looked up. The name above the tavern was his own. And Charrington said, with that one blow, that man did not only knock his wife out, but he knocked me clean out of that business forever. By the way, what's not pointed out here is he went to defend the woman and the man knocked him down too. 
And he gave up the fortune he might have had rather than than touch money earned in such a way. No man is keeper of another man's conscience. Every man must decide for himself if he can take his trade to Christ and Christ with him to his daily work. So the parallels to the occurrences that we have read in the news are are remarkable. There's truly nothing new under the sun. The occurrence in in which F.W. Charrington divested his fortune was calculated, was when he was 20 years old. This happened when he was 20 years old, when he went by that tavern. He was, uh, by today's standards, incredibly rich. The fortune he renounced was 1,250,000 pounds. I did a cost comparison and calculated the value today based on the devaluation of the dollar and the British pound, and it's somewhere north of $30 million. So he was a multimillionaire, Peter. It was in England. Um, In Barclay's commentary. (laughs) Um, These things are happening today. People are having their entire life's work destroyed because they will not cave into the wickedness around them. We need to be praying for those people. <laughs> they are certainly cleansing themselves from the defilement of flesh and spirit. This is Paul's desire for the Corinthians and by extension God's desire for us. Do whatever it takes to make certain you do not yoke yourself together with wickedness. Whether it is a person or an activity, abstain from all appearance of evil, as Paul said to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians. Any questions or comments about that verse? Remarkable, the parallels today, how that verse has direct, direct um, instruction for us today. Then Paul, he's starting to turn. Now remember back in chapter 2, about verse 14, he diverged into this, all of these details about the Corinthian issues and about being beaten and all of the things that he went through in his ministry, he's going to come back to what he was saying in chapter 2, early in chapter 2. So he, he start, it's kind of like he's starting to do that here. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. When, when, when someone has loved someone and been rejected by them, it's normal to come back again and again to work towards restoring the relationship of love. And so in chapter 6, Paul begs the Corinthians to open their hearts to him. He takes up that desire again here. He says, admit us or receive us. The phrase, in your hearts, that he quotes is not in the original, but it definitely fits the context, especially in light of the fact that he makes reference to his heart in verse 3, the very next verse. This is a plea from one person to another to go back to the good relationship they used to have. The false charges that were leveled against him and to which he refers at the beginning, the complaint that he um, was charging and, and that he was not the quite the apostle that the false apostles were, those were some of the charges. Those false charges to which he refers at the beginning of chapter 4, notwithstanding, he reminds the Corinthians that he and his companions in the gospel, despite those charges, you know better. He says, we have wronged no one. That is that they were unjust towards no one. Any corrections they had to make were corrections that were needed and were not done in an unjust manner. That is corrections to the believers in Corinth. And he had many to make, especially in the first book, in 1 Corinthians, when he dealt with people suing each other and living with a father's uh, wife, a son living with a father's wife, and all the other worshiping in idol or going to eat in idol temples, all kinds of things that he had to deal with. But he said, in all of this, we wronged no one. 
he reminds them also that they had corrupted. He had corrupted no one. That is, they had done no moral ruin to anyone. In fact, they had built the church up at Corinth by bringing them the undefiled word of God. It was the false apostles that were corrupting the work and the church at Corinth or attempting to. He also says, we took no advantage. We took advantage of no one. Using a Greek word, the root of which indicates covetousness, Paul also reminded the Corinthians that not only did he not take advantage, even advantage that he would have been owed because of the work he was doing, he rather worked with his own hands to make certain that everything he brought to the Corinthians was free of charge. The false accusations of the corrupt apostles were untrue, and the, and the Corinthians knew it. He reminded them of this. This, too, is evident today of false charlatans who preach the gospel to enrich themselves. And they want your money, they want your, they want your money, and they want your money. If you get saved, it's really not that important to them as long as you send them your money. And Paul did the opposite. He worked with his hands to make certain that the Corinthians would never be able to level the charge that he took advantage of them. So there are those in modern evangelic, there are those in modern evangelism who supposedly do take, who, uh, supposedly Christian, who do take advantage of others. They prey upon the good nature of Christians who have unfortunately, possibly a shallow understanding of proper doctrine and they get them to commit, contribute money that they may not have to further their own fortunes. This is doubly wicked. It is taking advantage of believers and God will deal with them most certainly. And it's a frightening thing. It'll be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Scripture says in, in Hebrews. It is one thing to pay your pastor. It's another thing if he's living an opulent lifestyle at your expense. And that's what's going on. And it's horrifying. And what's even more horrifying is that it often is people who can't afford to do that. Older, fixed-income folks who just don't have the resources. They care not. They want your money. Paul said, we took advantage of no one. That's a, that's a characteristic that you need to see in your leadership or in your, those who are responsible for your souls, not your leadership. God leads you. To give double force to his statement in this verse, Paul uses two interesting literary devices. The first is known as anaphoria, where he begins each of the three clauses after the first phrase with the same word in Greek. He uses the same word at the beginning of each phrase. The second device is known as homeoptaton, <laughs> say that three times fast, where he uses three verbs that have the same ending. Now, these were typical Greek literary devices of the day. It's not something, we do them today, and I was going to give some examples, and I forgot to write them down, but there are, where, where, where you say things that sound like what you're saying, those are one of the, one of the Greek tendencies, and then you, you can say, you've seen poems where they start a line of a poem with the same word each time. That's kind of what's going on here. So in Greek it would read, make room for us, not even one we wronged, not even one we corrupted, not even one we took advantage of. So he's, he's, he's emphasizing the fact that no one was wronged, no one was corrupted, no one was taken advantage of. And the emphasis would not have been lost on his readers, his hearers. And since each of the verbs have the same ending, it would even add to the force to a Greek hearer or to a Greek reader. So he was making certain that they knew that he had done them no wrong. And as a result of that, he's asking them, make room in your hearts for us. 
we can all identify with that, I think. When we, when we have people that we love, we would like them to make room in their hearts for us. And maybe sometimes they haven't. And it can take some encouragement and some persuasion to get them to do so. And it seems it's, it's just a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to do that. And so then he follows it up with this in verse 3. He says, I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before, you're in our hearts. You're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Whatever happens, Paul says, you're in our hearts. As if to mollify or, or soften his statement and to make certain the Corinthians know he's not attacking, he's not denigrating them, he tells them he's not condemning them. He reminds them that he, do, he has and he does love them and they are in his heart. And then he uses an expression often found in ancient writings in the papyri, they, it's, it's in numerous places, but he reverses its order so that has a distinctly Christian flavor. Pagans would say, whether we live or die. Paul reverses it and says, whether we die or live. Because his intention is, for, is to live together with the Corinthians. Not only were they in his heart in life, but they would also be there, he says, in death. For eternal life transcends death, and in this way the Corinthians and Paul were knit together permanently. This is reminiscent of Ruth's statement to Naomi in the Old Testament, she said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you in me. This is the essential gist or the, the nature of what Paul is communicating to the Corinthians. We are really in this together. And whatever happens, we're together. It's, I, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to make little of it by using modern terminology because sometimes it seems that way, but, but he, he's just making sure the Corinthians know that he loves them. And, and sometimes that's necessary to do when you've had to confront something in someone's life. It's important to make sure you remind them that you love them and that you do things that they will know you love them because it's hard when we have to correct. It's hard when you have to correct your older children. And I'm not older, not grown up and out on their own. I'm talking about teenagers in your home. It's hard. And uh, it's good to make certain that they know you love them all the time. And that doesn't minimize the correction. You know that and they know that. Any comments or, correct, or corrections? Yeah. Or in, in anything about uh, verses 2 or 3? Verse 4. And now this is where you know, if, I did, if, if it wasn't that this was Scripture and this was the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul, you'd think, is this guy buttering him up? Because the Corinthians were problem people, weren't they? They were problem children. He says in verse 4, great is my confidence in you. And I had to think this through and uh, do some more study, and I'll explain to you why I've come to the conclusion I have, why he could say this. Great is my boasting on your behalf, I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Now, as I said, this is the Corinthian church, you know, the one that Paul had the most trouble with. Why could he say this about them? How could he have confidence in them? Because he wasn't responsible for their growth. His God was responsible. He who began a good work in the Corinthians will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. Will, not... Well, everybody but the Corinthians. 
or everybody but no, you don't fill in that blank. He who began a good work in them will complete it. So he trusted Christ to work in them, as he said in Philippians, that the God who began a work in those Corinthians would continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, he said about the Corinthians in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. That's the confidence. They have the, they have the Lord Jesus Christ himself and they have the scripture. In fact, it was the grace of God that gave him great confidence in the Corinthians. By and large, this was a genuine Christian church and thus Paul could have the kind of confidence that only comes from knowing that the Lord is at work in someone else. The Lord was at work in them. There was his confidence. They were going to turn out, even though in the middle it didn't seem like. And sometimes when you're cooking something, it looks pretty ugly before it's done. Further than that, Paul boasted on behalf of the Corinthians. Now, we understand from his teaching to the Corinthians in his first epistle that the only kind of proper boasting is to boast in the Lord. So it is certain that that is what he is doing here. This is the result of genuine love. All of us want to be able to say good things about those whom we love. And so that is what Paul was doing here. And even more than that, he was comforted by the Corinthians despite the afflictions that they had brought him and the other afflictions that he was going through from time to time. And you know how that is. Sometimes your greatest difficulty ends up being your greatest blessing in your life, especially when it's children, often when it's children. Our love for one another as believers overcomes the little friction rubs that happen occasionally to our relationships. He was even overflowing with joy, he says, in the afflictions that were visited upon him, outside afflictions. Great must have been the comfort that Titus brought him with the report of the change and the growth in the church at Corinth. And so it is that if we have one another's love, we can endure more than when we are set adrift from others. Isn't that true? That when It's like, knowing someone's got your back. They love you, they care for you, and you know that if they come and they put their finger on your chest, that they're not doing that delightedly, that they love you, that they care for you. Those are the kinds of relationships that Paul's talking about here. That's the relationship that we are to have with our Heavenly Father, so that when He disciplines us, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, because we know He loves us. We know He loves us. Any comments or questions? About verse 7 or 4. <laughs> I'm going to finish this book today if I do it that way. <clears throat> now, now we're going to jump back. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Back in chapter 2, let's read the verse. Verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. Back in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 13. Paul began this thought, and this thought about Macedonia, and then the Holy Spirit turned his head, and he went off in a different direction for a while. He diverged into aggression, digression about his ministry, about his love, about his afflictions, about all the things that were going on in his life, which is why 2 Corinthians has been called a glimpse into the heart of the apostle. Here he comes back to his thought, about this trip to Macedonia regarding finding out how the Corinthians were doing from Titus. So verse 13 in verse chapter 2 said, I had no rest, not finding in my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking leave, I went to Macedonia. So he had an open door. Things were happening, but he, was he had written the difficult letter, the severe letter. 
And likely he was concerned about the effect that that had had. So he had no rest. His heart was unsettled. And add to that, he was afflicted by the Jews and others who sought to destroy his ministry. He had conflicts without, which would have been serious quarrels and disputes with others, including the false apostles. And he had his own fears within. He was, after all, a man. He was not God. He was an apostle. And God uses men and women to complete, to do his work here. This would have been the anxiety over his perception that he might have contributed to the Corinthian digression. Calvin and some others assumed that this reference to conflicts within and without implied difficulties within the church and without the church, but it's much more natural to read it as internal and external conflicts from a, a, from a personal perspective, from an individual perspective. He had written the difficult letter. He'd already dealt with people who were prone to sue one another over nothing. They were diff- they lived in a terribly sexually immoral city and they were struggling with some of that and he wrote a severe letter which we do not have but that he angsted over he, 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 he was anxious over it and so he bolted to Macedonia to get a report and so that's what's going on those are the fears that he's talking about the within and without fears his own just he was might I use the word worried about what was going on in Corinth they were difficult children they were, if, if it could be screwed up, they could do it the best that you'd ever seen. And he was concerned about them. But then he says in verse 6, but God, does God write the last chapter? He does write the last chapter. Some of us are in the middle of books. He's going to write the last chapter and it's going to be wonderful. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. It was the coming of Titus, however, with good news from Corinth that both comforted and consoled Paul. His desire to see the Corinthian church flourish was confirmed by his report, by Titus's report. For those who have been put in positions of responsibility, it is always a delight to hear that those that you have have um, agonized over are doing well. This was the sentiment that John mentioned in his third epistle, 3 John 1, 3, and 4. He says... For I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in truth. And Paul heard that the church, the troublesome church, was turning the corner, was setting things right, was ignoring and putting out the false apostles. And then imagine his anxiety and angst as he awaited the report from Titus, And when Titus brings the joy and the comfort that he probably didn't expect, it's with great relief that he writes these words that he wrote in this section of Corinthians. Any comments or questions about verse 7, 6, 5 and 6? Verse 7. And not only by his coming, Titus is coming, they met in Macedonia, but also by the comforted with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Titus himself was even comforted the Corinthians, by the Corinthians as he met with them. <coughs> they longed to see Paul, and they mourned their behavior towards him. And they, they mourned that they had caused him pain, and they had a zeal, which is an earnest desire towards him. They were loyal to him, and loyalty is becoming a very lost character quality, a very rare character trait. Uh, 
The Corinthians' response to the severe letter was incredible. It appears from Titus's report that they had taken a stand for Paul against the false prophets. Even though the church was still fraught with some problems, this report was a huge lift to Paul's spirits. And so that's the encouragement he's talking about here when he says, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only his coming, but also the comfort which he was comforted in you. So Titus himself was comforted. It's really easy to communicate good happenings when the good has been done to you and you get to communicate it. And so that is what had happened here. We don't really know for sure, but apparently Titus had not been um, well received by the Corinthians at some point. And so when he went there, I can imagine it was a little bit fear and trembling, a little bit on tiptoe, and then the Corinthians responded the way they did. They comforted him, they encouraged him, and he brought not only the words of comfort, but you can tell by people's body language and their facial expressions when they're, I mean, if I talk to you like this, if I said, I'm having a wonderful day. I'm having a wonderful day. Isn't that different? It's been said that 70 to 80% of language communication is, is physical, visible. So then, now we understand, here we're going to, Paul's going to explain to us why, one of the reasons why this response was so wonderful. He says, for though, in verse 8, I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So he had, Paul had had to work through this. He had to work through the concern that he had about writing the difficult letter, knowing that he was he was delivering God's words to people and then coming back around to the understanding that what was necessary was written and it was the right thing to do. So he regretted it for a while, but then he said only for, only for a while. When we are forced to take an action to begin the restoration of someone and the initial response appears to be negative, it can be tremendously disheartening. But those who are under the control of the Holy Spirit will at some point do the will of God, the good will of God, because he is at work in them. So Paul regretted his severe letter, he says, but only for a short time. It began to do its work, and I suspect it took some time to do the work necessary. And so Paul began to see the results with this report from Titus. It might not have been comfortable for Paul to confront the Corinthians. I'm sure it wasn't. Does anybody enjoy confrontation? Uh, well, there are people that do, but that's actually dysfunctional. If, if you enjoy confronting people, you probably shouldn't be the guy doing that. You know, let me at them. I'll shake them up. I'll ruin their lives. No, that's not what, not what we need here. So he regretted it for a short time. But he did as he needed in faithfulness to God. And this was the result. This was the beginning of the results. A church that longed for him. A church that mourned over their treatment of him and a church that now had great zeal towards him. They rejected the, the false teaching of the false apostles as they, they began to reject it, even as they still struggled with their own human nature. It is important for us to realize that as, that as sin is going on in someone's life, and we are the ones that need to confront it, then confront it we must. If, if we are the person that needs to confront that sin, the longer we wait, the more root it puts down and the more difficult it will be to remove. We are doing no one a favor if we wait for their sin to take great root. But I caution us all 
prayer, study of scripture, counsel. If nobody's dying, if there's no abuse going on, take some time before you jump into someone's life and begin trying to help them to work through some kind of problem that's going on. Um, Trust the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. If they're believers, he will work in their lives. Any comments or questions or concerns? We're all, all going to be there if we're not there now. So now, Paul says in verse 10, or, what is wrong with me this morning? In verse 9, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. And that's the guy that loves confrontation. Oh, I screwed their lives up for a while. It was wonderful. That's not what Paul did. He says, I now rejoice. Not that my letter made you sorrowful. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. When Paul says that he rejoiced over that severe letter, he does not mean that he cackled in delight when he nailed them. That is not what he meant. He is teaching them the proper way to deal with a sin in a life. He did what had to be done tearfully but faithfully. The sorrow that they experienced because of his severest remonstrance was not a sorrow of being caught. They were not upset. That The believers in Corinth, when they read that severe letter, they didn't went, oh, he got us, he caught us. That is not the sorrow that he experienced. They experienced sorrow because they were sinners and it was pointed out to them and they recognized it. That's what the grace and the illumination that the Holy Spirit will give us when someone confronts us with something we're doing that's wrong, a proper sorrow won't be that we got caught, but that we were doing wrong, that we were hurting people, that we were damaging the reputation of the Lord. Those are the kinds of sorrows that happened in that church. They were sorrowed because they recognized they had offended a holy God. This sorrow led them to repentance. We've got to keep this in mind. Proper sorrow results in recognition of one's sin, offending a holy God. And what does it do? It leads them to repentance, which is to change their mind about it. This was wrong. We're not going to do this anymore. And about what they were doing. They turned from sin back to holiness. And this is what brought Paul his joy. Not that they were just sorrowful, but they were sorrowful to the point of repentance. Now, how did he know they repented? Their behavior changed. That was in the report Titus brought. Somebody can be upset, sorry about something. But if their behavior doesn't change, it's kind of a useless sorrow. And that's what Paul will talk about. And we're probably not going to make it. We'll do what we can. They turned back from, from sin, back to holiness. And this is what brought Paul his joy. The pastor, teacher, elder, parent is never happy when someone sins. Never happy when someone sins. Nor is he happy when their sins brings damage to their lives. He may be called to confront that sin in a biblical manner, but he does it with the hope that the sheep will hear the voice of Christ and return to him. This is not a resaving, but rather a restoration of a relationship of a believer to their God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, what results to that, what results from that, is a healing of relationships with people. If you're seeking to heal the relationships between people, you will have a partial restoration. If you're seeking to heal the relationship between someone and God, then the outflow from that will be a healing of people's relationships, probably if the other person is interested in being healed. Does that, did, did that make sense? Did I 
Okay, so marriage, marriage problems and you're trying to restore the husband to the wife, you need to restore both. You need to work at restoring the people to God because you can't get in their head. You can't change their heart. The Holy Spirit can. You can present them with the things that they need to be repentant of and when they are truly repentant and sorrowful, God will begin to work in their lives. But we want quick fixes. We want band-aids, spiritual band-aids. Well, band-aids come off and scabs are still there. We, what we really should want is what Paul had. He did the hard, hard, heavy lifting of writing the difficult letter. And the result was repentance and changed lives. And the result was a strengthened church. The result was better communication. The result was um, later on in, in this book, we'll see that the gift to, to Jerusalem of money was increased. And it wasn't because, it was because they repented. They changed their behavior because Paul confronted them in the right way. And then we'll look at, we'll look at the kind of sorrow that is according to the will of God next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word to remind, to, uh, to, uh, con- condemn us if necessary and to commend us when it's time to do that. We ask you, Lord, that as we are responsible to be involved in restoring relationships between people and their, and, and you, that we would do it according to the scriptures, that we would use the sufficient work that you have given us and that the Holy Spirit might do his work in their hearts so that the repentance that comes would be true godly repentance, which would see a changed life and healing all around. Lord, some of that will come after this life, but much of it can come, can come during this life. And so those are some of the things that we seek. We thank you this morning that you are at work, you are at work in, even us today, in us even today uh, for these very things. Let us be a rejoicing to you. Let us be those who repent with a proper kind of repentance and then walk in this grace and the spirit of and, and the holiness that the spirit of god can give we'll thank you in that in jesus name amen thank you for listening to the latest podcast from kootenai church if you'd like to learn more about kootenai church or to donate to our church ministry you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org we hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time once again Thank you for listening.